You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 316. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Sjena, sjena! Hello! How are you? Sjena, sjena, what's that? Sjena, sjena, well, it's the same thing as hey-san, hey-san. I just thought I would <laughs> ah, mix it up okay. a bit, just to That's keep you good. on your toes. After 300 <laughs> episodes, I can change it once. <laughs> so, are you good? Are you well? Before you decided to confuse us, I was very well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's good to be back every week, so uh, it's it's good to see you guys again. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, yeah, we don't see each other often, but uh, every week, uh, once a week, we get together on Zoom, and uh, that's a good thing. Mm. I like yes. that. Mm. Very good. Even very if good. the world very is good. collapsing world is around crazy us. <laughs> as y- well, I almost said as usual, the world is crazy, but it's more crazy than usual at yeah. the moment that's real mm-hmm. it is. yeah yeah it's it's uh, what's going on is very difficult to wrap our, our heads around mm. but uh come on i i hear that uh, there are certain developments uh around your area pontus like uh sweden finland warming to the idea of uh, nato membership or mm, apparently maybe <laughs> perhaps maybe but today the prime minister said that uh, they're probably going to tone it down a bit with a NATO application because it will, would, quote-unquote, create tension in the region, <laughs> end quote. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't uh, think... But, of course, the, the discussion has, to be serious, the discussion has become much more pronounced now. For a long time, uh, yeah. it was out of the question to even yeah. think about or contemplate NATO membership. But... Uh, Now it's brought up to the subject because, like any other country in Europe, we are now scared. And (laughs) um, there was a couple of days ago, there were four Russian uh, fighter jets that violated our uh, airspace, probably just to test our. Um, how but prepared that's we were a little bit far off from from the russian border isn't it mm, oh they flew across the baltic sea the baltic sea over the uh, island of gotland which is mm. a swedish uh, island and uh, there were swedish jets there to meet them and uh, they of course say turned hello. around <laughs> you just say said hello like top gun or something but <laughs> but the, the, the tension is rising the Good news for us, if I want to be just looking selfishly at Sweden, and that is that Russia is so occupied in Ukraine that they don't have capacity to think about anything else. Yeah, there are reports saying that it's basically uh, over 90% of their forces are dedicated to the Ukrainian invasion at the moment, so... Yes, Basically, but I, <laughs> I, th- I saw that too, 95%. But I wonder, yeah. it was a little bit ambiguous in the reporting. I don't know if they meant, I don't think they meant all Russian forces in total, mm. but only the 95% of the troops that they had gathered around Ukraine were now in Ukraine. Okay. okay. I, I, I'm not well, sure. Well, but it's still a massive yeah. force. But uh, the, the interesting thing that some experts have stated is that it doesn't compare to the actions on Crimea. Because when it was the the movement on Crimea, they could operate with only professionals, very highly trained and yeah, well-experienced soldiers. But now... Now they're unprofessional, yes. Yeah, they see all these reports with with very young, basically kids, who were told that it was yeah. nothing more than just a practice, a military practice. Ridiculous. It's it's. I don't know what's going on. No. And they don't know either. That's probably even worse. Yeah, exactly. There's only so little we can do from the outside for them. Mm-hmm. Of course, donations of like clothes yeah. and stuff is wonderful. But if you think about helping people from here, then cash is best. Mm -hmm. It might feel impersonal, you know, Mm. but it doesn't leave local organizers with 
heaps of stuff and a shortage of truck drivers and running out of warehouse space, uh, maybe because people didn't label things properly, then then losing good food going to waste because um, mm. you just can't store it. And yeah, in that regard, cash is best. And some people had a really good idea in that regard. I don't know if you heard about the Airbnb yes, campaign. Yes, right. Did <laughs> that was actually that. pretty ingenious, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the counterpart of that is that Airbnb shutting down Russian Airbnb. So the, yes. the, the whole service is being shut down in Russia, yeah. whereas in Ukraine, they decided to not take any fees for the, the bookings. Mm -hmm. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe, Andika, you, you should bring everybody up to speed if they haven't heard. Yeah, so someone just said on social media, hey, a good idea or a good way to bring cash inside Ukraine without donating to a big organization is to just book a room in Kiev or wherever and just tell them like, hey, I don't intend to come, but please accept my booking. Hmm. And yeah, that's how you that's get money trick, yeah. into there. Yeah, And yeah. so many people did that. It, it was really wonderful to see, I have to say. But but it's a good point. You don't send 10 pallets of baked beans when they need diapers. Send money. That's the best way to help, I think. Exactly. Yeah, and not necessarily it's uh, and this is this is why even if you send it to large organizations when they have boots on the ground at the places where the the help is needed the most. Don't send boots either. <laughs> they know exactly what's needed the most and they can get it if they have the the resources. They can buy stuff and take it there based on the things that they know about with regards to what's needed most. Right. Yeah, do that. Yeah, and uh, definitely don't go up to space right now because uh, the tension is growing on the on the ISS as well. It looks like the Russian space agency, Roscosmos, decided to hold corporations, even though there are several German, I think two German astronauts, two Russian astronauts, and one American astronaut on the ISS at the moment. And they should be working together, which is... Yeah, happening in a way because the everyday tasks are being done together. Yeah, running the, the, the ISS requires all the staff. However, the experiments are being separated now. So this is what we mentioned last week. You remember mm -hmm. that we fear that this might happen even up there. And apparently this is already happening. And all the joint missions are being shut down by Roscosmos in response to the international sanctions against Russia, which Putin brought upon themselves. So, yeah. But this didn't even happen during the Cold War, did it? I mean, even during the Cold War, most of the space collaboration still continued. Isn't that right? Well, in the Cold War, I don't think I there think were many race, collaborative... <laughs> yeah, well, not, not in the sixties, I think. But, uh, yeah, but not in the sixties because then there were there was the space race. But then in the late seventies and the, in, even under Reagan, I think they had the they were docking a Soyuz capsule with the, the American thing. I, I can't remember. Maybe I shouldn't speculate uh, <laughs> without yeah, being prepared. Yeah, on a skeptical podcast. But yeah. but I think. <laughs> My impression, my recollection, being old as hell, is that the collaboration went well even during the eighties. Yeah, it was like, like something like a handshake that that rings a bell to me too. But in general, there was not much collaboration. However, there was collaboration with countries of the Eastern Bloc. So, for example, this is how even a Hungarian astronaut went up to space to Salyut 6, the space station. It was a very small space station. In the 80s? It was in the 80s. I th yeah. Must have been, I guess. Yeah, long time ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. So that kind of collaboration did exist, but it was within the Eastern Bloc. So oh, I... Right. I yeah, actual collaboration, I don't know of any. But if our, any of our listeners uh, do do know that or want to straighten us out, <laughs> please, please let us know so. if we are just talking <laughs> rubbish here. And uh, So maybe, yeah. maybe we should go on to the rest of the program, which we actually have prepared a little bit, and maybe we know what we're yes. talking about. 
<laughs> yes, obviously, we will probably do something along the lines of what we did back when there was a, f- a full-blown pandemic going on, and we started our news block every week, basically with that. This is gonna probably going to stay with us. I mean, the war as a topic will stay with us for Hopefully a while. Not. Let's hope. Let's hope it goes away very quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like magically, Putin one day gets up and decides to just. We can send him into space. I think. Yeah, one way ticket. Mm. All right, so let's start. The segment is part of the show that we actually prepared. Yes, and what else to start with other than this week in skeptical history, which is Twitch. And, uh, yeah, that is not very long history that we're talking about, because (laughs) he's not that old. But I would like to mention someone who's a very important member of the international skeptical community, and that is Massimo Polidoro, who was born on the 10th of March, 1969. Now, who is Massimo Polidoro? For those of you who don't know, well, shame on you, because (laughs) 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 because, because he's an amazing guy. And um, actually, we have interviewed him uh, a couple of times. He was on this show four times. So on episode 18, episode 100, episode 140, and episode 189. So uh, one of the reasons why we interviewed him so many times is because he's a prolific writer of uh, fictional and non-fictional stories, uh, books as well. I started counting the number of his books, but I think it's uh, around the lower 30s. Which, which is ridiculous for a guy who's only 52 years old. And uh, he's a wonderful person. We all know him personally as well. By training, he's a psychologist, but we know him as a writer, a journalist, a television personality. And he co-founded, and for, for a long time, he was executive director to the Italian Committee for the Investigation of Claims of the Pseudoscience, also known as CICAP. Oh. He's not the executive director anymore, I just checked out, based on what Paola de Gobbi, who represents the CICAP on the European Council of Skeptical Organizations, also known as EXO, helped me out with this, uh, sorting out what his current position is. And he is currently holding the position of uh, Segretario Nazionale, which is National Secretary. Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds beautiful, but he is not actually on the board of directors of Chicap anymore. But I read Uh, on Wikipedia that he is. Yeah, well, we'll sort that out shortly. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) But uh, that is more of a ceremonial position. So he keeps representing the the organization on the national level. He goes on TV representing uh, Chicap and, and all that. And he's also an official director of Chicap Fest, which mm-hmm. has grown into like a massive national science and skepticism festival that is really big. I remember, do you remember when I participated in Chicap? I actually attended two of the Chicap Fests. One of them I did attend with Susan Gerbic and uh, Mark Edward uh, when we were on the Never About Ending Time Tour. tour. Okay. The never-ending <laughs> tour of, of Europe. And we were very close to Frankie, by the way. Yeah, Pope, even the Pope, Pope was Fra- there. Pope yeah. Francis, yes. He was giving a talk just one street down from where we were. And then I attended one in Padova, where I even gave a talk. In Italian. Yeah, that one, in Italian. And that one was massive. Not because of me, but because, <laughs> because of how they brought it together. And it was amazing. And, and the attendance was in, I think if I remember correctly, there were around 20,000 people attending at least some of the events going on. So that was amazing. No wonder he was nominated director of Chicap Fest because he's a guy who can keep the threads in his hands very professionally and being a chief organizer or something will bring that to success. But with regards to his other claims, he's a research fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, CSI. Uh, he was the initiator and for a long time chief editor of uh, the magazine of Chick Up. 
And uh, he is one of the creators of the James Randi biography project, which is uh, Pendulet's brainchild. Yeah, he's just amazing. He he wrote the book The Great Houdini, which celebrates the life and achievements of Eric Weiss, who was born in Hungary under that name, but became the Great Houdini that all skeptics probably know as the escape artist and a role model to James Randi, who's a role model to every living skeptic out there. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that if we're connecting the dots, then it's easy to see how big a person of the international skeptical movement Massimo Polidoro is. So, on the 10th of March, he celebrates his 52nd birthday, and on that occasion, we wish him all the best and a very happy birthday. And as I usually say, whenever there's a birthday of uh, any of my friends, may... The blind forces of selection favor you and your genes for long, mister. <laughs> I remember that, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, Massimo. Happy right. birthday. <laughs> but, uh, yes, yeah, sticking around Italy, do we have something to poke the Pope for, Pontus? Yes, we do, actually. We didn't do that last week because of Putin. We poked, mm-hmm. po- Pontus pokes Putin. That's the next segment. <laughs> but but today, for today, we're going to poke the Pope. And we are going to do that by talking about a buddy of his called Gustavo Sanchetta, former bishop of the Argentinian Diocese of Uran. We have mentioned this before in on episode 183 and again on 199. When Francis became the Pope in 2013, one of the first appointments of bishops he did included Sanchetta, who reportedly often used to boast about how close he was to the Pope. But um, less than two years after being made bishop, Sanchetta had some problems. There were allegations of pressuring male seminarians in the evenings. That sounds like almost like a porn movie, and it wasn't far from the truth. It also involved alcohol, and it was not just loose accusations. There were inappropriate pictures, also known as porn, for people who can say the word out loud, were found on uh, Sanchetta's phone, including also nude pictures of himself. He blamed it all on a conspiracy. And um, amazingly, that first investigation came to nothing. And, And that's one hell of a conspiracy he's got there. Okay. Let's say you can hack somebody's phone. I'm sure that's possible. But getting Sanchetta himself to pose naked and have that photographed with his own phone without him knowing, that is a hell of a conspiracy. Anyway, that happened. It took another two years until he was actually forced to resign out of, as it was officially stated, health reasons. Francis still expressed his support for the guy and brought him to Rome, where he created a special new position for Sanchetta in the APSA, which I forget what the acronym is, but it is the body that administers the Vatican's financial portfolio. So it's a lot, it's a prestigious thing. Something must have been up though, because in 2017, Francis sent uh, Sanchetta to Spain for so called psychological treatment, end quote. And we all know what that is. Because the Catholic world thinks that uh, homosexuality is a sickness, it's also something that you can cure, so they send them for psychological treatment or correction. Never works, of course, because it's not a problem and it's not a sickness. But that's how they think. Still, in 2018, a year later, the Vatican claimed that they hadn't heard about the allegations against Sanchetta. That's very strange. How do you treat somebody for something that's not a problem that you haven't even heard about before? But uh, things were closing in on Sanchetta, and he had eventually to return home to Argentina to face trial. And at long last, the news for today is that last Friday... Gustavo Sanchetta was sentenced by an Argentinian court in Oran to four and a half years in prison for, quote, simple, continued and aggravated sexual abuse, end quote. I think the word simple here means not that it's easy or <laughs> simple in that regard. It's simple in the, in the sense that it is mean and um, uh, evil. Yeah. Evil. Evil. So... 
I've said this before, but this systematic abuse, which is facilitated by the Catholic Church, it goes all the way to the top. Even the sort of Frankie's best friend is involved. Francis, by the way, to my knowledge, has not commented on the fate of his good friend, Sancheta. Mm. Staying away. Who knows? <laughs> Don't want to get stained, right? Hmm. Ooh. That doesn't sound good in that context. Yeah, <laughs> cut that context, out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, my dirty mind, you know. Didn't really think it through. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Pontus, for poking Frankie once again. And that leaves us with the news. What's going on in Europe? Yeah. And I will start with the latest trends. But <laughs> luckily, we're not in a fashion magazine here. <laughs> Although yeah. I'd rather talk about fashion trends than these trends, because I'm talking about disinformation trends. I hate those. Yes. <laughs> I think we all hate those. Otherwise, we wouldn't be skeptics. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, in the moment a major story breaks, there will be recycled videos popping up, sometimes also photos. Of course, there will be new styles and variants of misinformation combined with this footage. But people that know a lot about it, like our friends from Snopes, they will find things they know knew before. This footage is often misleading, decontextualized and sometimes even fabricated. And an example for that is that in February 19, a video of an assumed Indian airstrike against Islamic militants in Pakistan came up. A lot of research was done by Snopes and they found out that it came from the military simulation video game called ARMA2 or Arma2. Wow, again, we talked about that last week as well. Yeah. A lot of yeah. video wow. games yeah. popping up in these contexts. And people really don't see whenever they watch the video that it's so obvious. Yes. Well, it's harder now than it was in the 80s when it was Pong. Exactly, but I it, it wasn't You're right. possible okay. at that age. But like right now, we even have actors taken to portray um, characters in video games and stuff. Mm. Like it is getting really, yeah. really good. There was another post now that was portrayed or like, that was supposed to be showing Ukrainian forces firing missiles at Russian artillery. And this was from the video game Arma 3. <laughs> so, <laughs> really? You can also find videos supposedly showing the ghost of Kiev that we also talked about last yeah. week. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was out of the digital combat simulator. You can find videos turning up that are out of games or that are out of other conflicts. But there are also troll tropes. For example, the comedian Sam Hyde is very often photoshopped into pictures being like an Ukrainian person missing or another person in another conflict missing so for some reason he's always photoshopped into these things and of course something you can always find when there are crises are conspiracy theories <laughs> we talked a lot in the last year about conspiracy theories in connection with covid and of course there's one special conspiracy theory already around connected to covid and to the russian conflict and that is that supposedly the US has been developing top secret networks of laboratories for producing biological weapons, including COVID. And Russia's invasion, they say, is supposedly an heroic act to disarm these biolabs. And the, all I can say to that is what the actual fuck. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, guys, this is not a heroic act. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, no. Yeah, so these are my funny little trends, not at all. Let's hope that we can still battle these, these disinformation trends with knowledge and information and telling people about it. Yeah, and a lot of fact-checking. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but it's natural that there, there are a lot of mysteries in, in this conflict. And one, uh, one such is the letter Z or Z for our American friends that is constantly seen on the Russian troops. It's everywhere. It's on painted on tanks and trucks, and it's also now appearing on T-shirts and all in all kinds of places by uh, Russian supporters. 
And of course, the conspiracy nuts come out now to try to figure out what it means. And it is a bit strange because the letter Z or Z does not appear in the Cyrillic alphabet. So what can it mean? Must be something very, very dark and secret. At the time of this recording, spoiler, I must say that we don't know, or at least I don't know. If anybody knows, please send in your information to info at theesp.eu and we'll bring it up next week. But as far as we know right now, it's still unknown. And I should say that that's quite natural for a skeptic to say that we don't know. We shouldn't make things up. We, we don't know what's going on. But there are some theories. Uh, some are sensible and some are more strange. One explanation is that it just indicates a direction. Zabad, apparently. Probably pronounced differently in, in Russian. But that means west in Russian, apparently. It's, however, it is spelled with what we to us looks like uh, the numeral three in the beginning. So not with a Z. Uh, yeah. that, so that's one explanation, indicating that they're going west or, or something like that. But why have they chosen the Latin character for Z instead of a 3? Uh, that's not known. Others believe that uh, the letter was drawn in an attempt to avoid friendly fire. Some pro-Kremlin military experts have speculated that it actually means Z for Zelensky. But that is a little bit uh, far-fetched, in my opinion. I don't think that Ukrainian troops would avoid firing on a tank just because it said a Z, and it could be... I don't think you... I mean, Zelensky appears to be a hero in the front lines, but I don't think he sits in that tank. Uh, there's another thing that actually comes from the Russian Defense Ministry, because they have commented as on this as well. They haven't replied to direct questions, but they have posted on Instagram that Z means Zapubedu, or something like that, which apparently means for victory, and that a V stood for power of truth. Still, that doesn't explain why they used the Latin character Z instead of a 3. And the fact is that there are other symbols that they have used, but they haven't meant gained that much attention. So we, we don't know. Regardless of why it is a said that has been chosen, only three days after the invasion, the Russian state network RT announced on its social media channels that they were now selling said merchandise, including t-shirts and hoodies, to show support for Russian troops. And, mm. and maybe we'll never know what it actually stands for, but it's not a new thing for Russian troops to adopt a strange symbol like that. In other words, they have often had more or less random marks as a symbol for that particular mission, if we can call that call this a mission. Indian it is a mission. It's a, it's a special military operation. It's that, that's right. Sorry. Special <laughs> military operation. But in the annexation of Crimea, it was an orange and black striped ribbon, apparently of St. George for some reason. Uh, and that symbol has now also been widely popular in Russia for those who want to show public support of the Russian government. So it may be more or less random what uh, symbol they chose, or we will find out someday what they were thinking. In any case, that Z has now stuck as a pro-Russian symbol and it won't go away. And maybe it will become some sort of crazy counterpart to the American Q for QAnon, which doesn't make much sense either. Oh, yeah. But uh, there are a lot of things that don't make any sense whatsoever. Well, we know, uh, we, we were joking with that, but it's dead serious. It's not allowed in Russia to call this war that Putin started a war or an invasion or an uh, annexation or anything like that. It has to be called special military operation. That's the ridiculous name that uh, Putin came up with. However, the problem is that so far there have been a couple of sources that could still get the message through and get the facts straight about this operation, but uh, their numbers are, well, diminishing as we speak. So much so that the Russian lawmakers decided to prove the sanctions against anyone who says something about this operation that uh, 
that contradicts the official opinion, the official way of communicating it. What am I talking about? So if someone dares say that this is a war against Ukraine, they could face a prison sentence of up to three or even 15 years for spreading so-called disinformation or fake news. Hmm. And fake will be whatever the Russian state declares so or deems fake. Okay, We learned so, last week what they call it. It's ultra super truth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's actually very scary, especially if you put it together with the fact that as a response to some of the Russian news outlets outside of uh, R- Russia, like Russia Today and Sputnik, were blocked by some platforms, including Facebook. As a response to that, they decided to shut Facebook completely down and some other news outlets, especially those that are Russian-speaking but critical towards the Putin administration. So the BBC has, or used to have, <laughs> they, they do have uh, Russian-speaking programs. Free Europe... Radio Liberty, Deutsche Welle, and the the Latvia-based website Medusa, they all publish in Russian, but they will be blocked in Russia. And now we see the emergence of um, the usage of VPNs, so virtual private networks, as a result of this. So the only way for Russian users to get around the blockage that goes from the government is the using of VPNs. So now it looks like the demand for VPNs in Russia was about six times of the level prior to the invasion. Mm. It shows you how a lot of people are making efforts to access news that are being banned in Russia. In a way, this is very interesting. But on the other hand, this shows exactly how authoritarian and how absolutely paranoid the Russian state is, well, especially Putin himself. He doesn't want to allow any criticism to even exist in the country. And if so, if someone comes up with something, then they can face charges, well, monetary fees, or even up to 15 years in prison, which is absolutely unproportional to whatever you think it it might be a kind of sin against uh, the government. Well, Mm. 15 years, that's ridiculous. But that will have a silencing effect, that's for sure. But it's not surprising at all. Right. Do you see, I don't know. I don't know the technical part here. But is there a way for the Russian government to block the use of VPNs? Or is that not possible? Well, if someone listening to this can give us information on that, that, that would be, be, that would be absolutely know, yeah. lovely. Yeah. I do not know about that. Putin, if you're listening, Put- it's not possible. Yeah. Don't try it. Don't block it, yes. Yeah. Now, the next step will probably be banning the usage of VPNs or Or computers. Sanctioning. Yeah, Mm. or computers. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, by the way, (laughs) speaking of which, it looks like BBC has decided to try to go back to the early times. It's bringing back shortwave radio transmissions Ooh. to Ukraine and parts of Russia to, yeah, to be a- to for block. people to be able to use it with a basic equipment. So the less sophisticated the equipment is, the more likely you'll be able to watch it. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's nice. amazing. Or, or listen to it because mm-hmm. it's not um, television programs, but it's, it's uh, radio. It's radio only. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Radio is uh, going through walls. Was the same yeah. with Ber- the Berlin Wall, and yeah. And the Estonians listening to Finnish radio and watching Finnish television against the law, <laughs> but they could do it, and their language was close enough so that they could understand oh. some of the free world and what was going on. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, and that happened in East Berlin too. Yeah, where people like secretly <laughs> listen to West radio in uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> probably on the toilet or so, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my topic is uh, sadly also connected to the Ukrainian war and also not funny at all. The Ukrainian Holocaust Memorial in Babinja was hit by Putin's war. <sighs> of course, if I butchered that pronunciation. You know what to do. You know the drill by now. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened in this place 
which is Ukrainian for old woman's ravine. But it's like Babenyar or Babenyar is just a place name in that regard. But it stands for so much more now. In the late September of 1941, tens of thousands of Jews were rounded up in Kiev and taken to a place called Babenya, where they were forced to strip and then shot by Einsatzgruppe C Sonderkommando 4A. And that's, of course, a Nazi term for like a killing commando. A murder commando and more than 33,000 Jews were murdered there which is incredible large number and this massacre represents the holocaust by bullets by shooting um, people and not only Jews were killed there in later years Roma Soviet prisoners of war priests and Ukrainian nationalists also were killed there so all in all about 100,000 people were killed there. You wow. can you can imagine it was a massive murdering site. The first memorial at this site was erected in 1976. It was dedicated to Soviet citizens. <laughs> After the collapse of the USSR, they started also erecting other memorials and recalling the various victim groups and erecting memorials for them. Yeah. You can imagine that attacks on this site have been widely condemned. The USSR had a long history of failing to acknowledge Jewish victims during the Holocaust. And this seems to be another attempt, not by the USSR, but now by Russia, to destroy the memory. And this is very ironic because Putin always says he wants to defend Russia against the genocide and humiliation from Ukraine and denazify it. And there you can see how absurd that is. Because if that was actually his idea, then he would tell everyone, like, don't touch this memorial. Putin himself, he sees himself as a global leader of Christian nationalism. And if you think about that and how he behaves, it, it seems, if for me, it's hard to not think of a certain other fascist leader hmm. in that regard. And if... Putin talks about the West leading to degradation and degeneration and the Jews being a threat to him, then it does sound a lot like Hitler to me. Something even more interesting in that regard is that Zelensky had three great uncles murdered in the Holocaust and is Jewish himself. So from Putin's point of view, or if you take all of this into account, then it's no surprise that Babinia got damaged in an attack but something that we can probably all see and all know is that there will be a new memorial added at this site when we finally will have peace in ukraine mm. yeah let's mm -hmm. hope that and let's hope that comes soon yes i think we need some good news now i think yes. we've talked enough about uh, the atrocities that are happening in Go ukraine and, and russia so i have some good news give us a shot of happiness yes right <laughs> this yes. is good news it's not about ukraine and it's even if it's not surprising it's still good news We go back to talk about the pandemic, right? Remember when we... When we only had the pandemic to worry about, yes. And now I'm talking about good news. <laughs> well, this is about the vaccines. The mRNA vaccines employed against COVID are very, very safe. And side effects are mild. This is not just my opinion. It is according to a huge American study published in The Lancet. There have been, of course, a lot of disinformation about the safety of the COVID vaccines, and especially this spooky new technology called mRNA. Lots of um, propaganda against it, including that it's manipulating the DNA in your cells. And it, that's all nonsense, of course. There's no reason why these vaccines should be dangerous. But in science, we follow everything up and we make sure that what we believe actually is true. So... A lot of our listeners, I believe, have heard about the VEARS register, or the VARS register, which stands for the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. To make sure that we catch every possible side effect, anybody can report side effects, real or imaginary, to this register so that we, the rest of us can find out what's going on. The issue is that there is no verification Uh, that the side effect reported really is linked to the vaccine. Anyone 
can report almost anything. You can report that you broke your arm two days after getting the jab, and that will stay in the database. But this study looked into this uh, VAS system and also into something called vSafe, which is another system similar. And the researchers tracked down and categorized the reported effects of almost 300 million doses that was administered in the US. So that's quite a lot of doses to go through. So among the side effects that they found were injection site pain. Of course, you put a needle in somebody, that hurts a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Also, there was fatigue, headaches, redness, swelling, things like that. I think most of us recognize it. Uh, Over 92% of the side effects were classified as non-serious. 6.6% was serious. And the scary part is that 1.3% were reported deaths. Now, that's scary. More than 1% of people getting the jab died. No worries. Remember that, first of all, that this is self-reported. And I, I guess not by the actual dead person. I don't think that happened. I think somebody else had to report that for you. But uh, if it's self-reported, how do we know if the deaths were really due to the vaccine or not? Well, the researchers divided the reports into age groups and compared that to what is normal for that particular age group. So the study looked at the first six months of the American vaccine program. And who did they vaccinate first? Older people, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So yes. risk group. Yeah. To cut this short, the study concluded that there was no increase in deaths and the number of deaths following the vaccinations compared to what is normally occurring in those respective age groups. So it's not deadly and most reactions are mild. But interestingly, they actually found what a lot of us have heard or even experienced uh, anecdotally. The second dose actually seems to generate a slightly higher side effect than the first. But still not more deaths. That That's just a, a myth. And I know that this register has been misused by a lot of anti-vaxxers. They point to this and say that, look here, all we have all these side effects, we have all these deaths and stuff. So I'm very happy that somebody went through almost 300 million doses and reported side effects and found that, nope, nothing happening here. There's some mild effects. There's some serious effects, but they are passing and there are no excess deaths among people who got the vaccine. Hmm. Well, uh, let's stick to, uh, with the uh, vaccination because Uh-oh. I've got I've got to report from two uh, Hungarian institutions who conducted research and put together studies on different aspects of being anti-vax or uh, anti-vax versus pro-vaccine parts of the society. So the first one was done by the Center for Social Research, and um, they conducted some kind of research on a sample of a thousand people and gathering information on their attitudes and social background. So based on that, it was a largely representative survey. And they wanted to find out if there were significant differences in the social background, education level, and economic situation of the pro-vaccine versus the anti-vaccine groups. And they found not much of those correlations, actually, Mm -hmm. which is very, very interesting. What they found correlations with is how these people were open to conspiracy theories in the first place. So those who were open to more open to conspiracy theories were much more likely to be in the anti-vaccination group. That was one of their very important findings. Mm -hmm. Not surprising. And yes, so not social status, not educational level, but proneness to believing conspiracy theories, which uh, we all know that not necessarily correlate with any of those variables either. Now, the other part was where they get their news from. So those who are relying mostly on 
online news platforms, and not necessarily Facebook, but all the online news platforms, they were much more likely to be on the anti-vax side of things. But the most important and interesting things were among those who already belonged to one or the other group. And especially when it came to the anti-vaccination group and the number of people who believed in some kind of an, an explanation as to what's going on behind the scenes. So, for example, the anti-vaccination group had 71% of them, of uh, of their respondents, agreeing with the statement that vaccines serve the power of the underlining financial and political forces. 71%. That is very, very high. So that means that they are actively against the the vaccination because they believe it's not serving their own needs and their own best interest, which is very alarming. But what is even more alarming, probably, is that 57% of the anti-vax respondents agreed with the more radical statement that those in power put something, some secret ingredient into the vaccines instead of just the thing that will keep you away from the, the, the illness or serious disease. That means that more than half of the anti-vax people believed that there is something really fishy going on in the background. And not only on the political level, but they are actively trying to put something harmful into your body. I don't know about you, but that really surprised me. That is really a high number. Hmm. Yeah, It's a high number, but it it is in line with what we've heard before. I I think a lot of the anti-vax movement, the conspiracy theorists, they all are on the same... They are suspicious. They somehow feel let down by society. Somebody's out to get them. There's something fishy going on, as you say. So it all goes together. It sort of fits. Yeah. Uh, But there is the other study that was uh, written up by experts. Uh, One of them, Peter Kreko, will be among the speakers of the European Skeptics Congress in Vienna. He's the general director of Political Capital that published this study that I'm going to talk about now. And that was focusing on how much profit the anti-vaxxers can generate with their, their unsubstantiated statements online. And that is very shocking as well. So building on the conspiracy thinking and the conspiratorial thinking and building on the distrust towards the government and the profitable companies that provide the world with the vaccinations and all that, because obviously they operate on that kind of distrust against pharmaceutical industry as well. They generate their own very, very high profit. So what are the numbers? They they analyzed 93 pseudoscientific COVID skeptic and alternative therapy or anti-vaccination sites. And all of them use Google Ads. All they're about is clickbait, basically. And they estimated that there is about a 3.7 billion Hungarian foreign advertising revenue generated by those websites. So how much is that in euros? It's about, well, with current exchange rate, which is very ridiculously high, we are talking about a 10 million euro revenue mm-hmm. each year by those websites. And that is only the Google Ads revenue that we're talking about. And we know of a couple of those spreading anti-vax disinformation, including some uh, the, the one guy that I already mentioned on this show uh, several times, Gabor Lenke, who's a big vitamin guru, the biggest vitamin guru of the country. And he more than doubled, almost tripled his revenue since the beginning of the pandemic. Hmm based on vitamin products that he promotes as being like a, a panacea against, well, a panacea. So that's, that, that goes <laughs> against, against everything. everything, by definition. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he even stated that he could sit in a bathtub full of coronavirus and he would still not get ill because of all the vitamins that he consumes. And uh, Did you challenge him to try that or...? 
No, we should have probably. <laughs> um, so, and that uh, one one very interesting thing is that if you compare it to this kind of revenue, to the advertising, the state advertising revenue officially announced by one of the greatest or the most watched uh, TV channels in Hungary, that is below that kind of revenue. So they generate about 2.5 billion a year mm-hmm. from state advertising. And that gives you a very good sense of how big this profit can be from spreading misinformation and dangerous ones at that. We should probably have Peter Kreko at some point on the show, but he's currently being very, very busy. I asked him to come on the show and talk about this as well, because he's an expert on conspiracy theories as well. He currently appears all over the place, all the TV channels, all the radios invite him to speak about conspiracy theories and this war uh, against Ukraine. Yeah, so it's not going to be easy to book him, but uh, I'm, we're still working on it. <laughs> One of the reasons for that is because I'm not sure we can have everyone, but as we did previously, we would like to interview people who will be speakers of the European Skeptics Congress in advance. We'll see how we can manage. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but that has been all the news, and that means that we are moving on to finding out who's been really wrong lately. So it's Putin, right? <laughs> no, it's not Putin. It's more he still, COVID. He still is wrong, though. Yeah, he is still. He is still wrong. But okay. this is about yeah. more COVID news. Okay. Yeah. There's this prestigious and well-respected hospital in Sweden called Danderyds Sjukhus, which means Danderyd Hospital, basically. It's close to Stockholm, and they have messed up in a rehabilitation treatment program for COVID patients. This program is looking into what's going on with post-COVID symptoms and how to improve those people who suffer from that. Mm-hmm. To a large extent, it seems to be a good program, I must say. It involves doctors, psychologists, occupational counselors, opticians, physiotherapists, and nurses. So, so quite a very comprehensive and very appreciated as well. However, one MD participating in this program, she came on to talk about nutrition and explained that people suffering from post-COVID symptoms may also have so-called leaky gut syndrome, which makes makes them ill. According to her, the leaky bowels caused inflammation in the body and the inflammation can be cured with eating anti-inflammatory foods. So all the patients were encouraged to try raw food diet, food that hasn't been heated above 42 degrees, that is, and superfood, so-called superfood, such as hemp. I didn't even know that that was food. Hemp, (laughs) algae, and bee pollen. I don't know that bee pollen is much of a food either. Now you know. The patients were also recommended to eat prebiotics and, and dandelion and green banana. The doctor also shared a recipe for anti-inflammatory golden milk. Didn't know what that was. That is apparently a mixture of, among other things, oat milk, turmeric, and coconut oil. Everybody should also avoid plastic materials and food that contains additives and replace, among other things, iceberg lettuce milk and meat with sorghum i didn't didn't know what sorghum is i don't know what it is in swedish either i have no idea either no something (laughs) sorghum (laughs) something (laughs) turned vegetables that is vegetables that you have sliced in a spiral right fish and green juice according to this doctor also the food should preferably be seasoned with ginger and turmeric again Participants were encouraged to become quote-unquote nutrition detectives. All of this (laughs) reek of pseudoscience and the hospital realizes this and they are now apologizing for what happened. Luckily, this came to light because another doctor who was sick with long-term COVID symptoms, she attended the course as a patient and she reported what happened. She said it was totally unscientific and it felt like victim blaming. If we had eaten, quote unquote, correctly, we would have been okay. So we know this 
happens all the time, especially on the internet and within the public. We have influencers spreading unproven claims also uh, on YouTube and Instagram and whatnot. We even had one on this show to interview Pixie Turner, an influencer who realized the harm that she was doing and went off to study and became a real nutritionist. We talked to her on episodes 146 and 161 if listeners want to check it out. And she's she's great. She could tell us a lot about how the talk is within these influencer groups. But that's one thing, internet and um, influencers, but to have high-ranking hospitals, and this is really a very prestigious hospital, to have them propagate this unproven and baseless claims are not good. Because of that, Danderyds Hospital gets today's prize for being really wrong. Even if they're now trying to fix and correct the problem, they were still wrong to, to let this happen in the first place. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easier to avoid a problem than to to solve it. When, That's when right. It's now it's there. out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's basically just firefighting, mm-hmm. damage mm-hmm. control that's um, going on in in this situation. Yeah. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of the show. But before we go, as usual, we of course need a quote. Yes, and the quote is. Hard to believe by someone we didn't quote before. I was very surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The quote is by our well-known friend Massimo Polidoro. That we also oh, talked about the boy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the quote is as it goes: We are accused of being blasphemous, but we are not interested in people's religious beliefs. We are people who want to understand the world around us. When people have both sides of a story, they can make up their own minds. Hmm, very good, very good. I think that's a very nice skeptical approach. And lately, I've been trying very hard to employ that attitude. <laughs> Instead of attacking people for, for believing something that is sounds weird or yeah. unsubstantiated, let's try and, and give them an option. Yeah. Yeah, be yeah. kind and inform. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had an interesting uh, conversation today with uh, Spiritist. We were like a panel, like a, a discussion situation. We were both invited to a podcast, and uh, I think that went quite well. So we didn't attack each other. We we were not engaging in a battle, but uh, we were exchanging ideas, and I uh, and I think we could clearly communicate what we were standing for. Mm-hmm. So I believe in that being yeah, being the that's right. That's much yes. more productive. Yeah. And uh, apparently we are in complete agreement with Massimo Polidoro as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> good. yeah, with that really calm feeling in our hearts, I think we can finish the show. Thank you very much, Pontus and Annika, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Vislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. I've said this before, but this. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
So I've said this larger before. fonts, larger <laughs> fonts, my friends. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe I have wrong wrong glasses. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, just a couple of days ago, I saw a video, and an expert huh? told about Putin that whenever he is given a paper to read from, it's always with massive fonts because he should wear glasses, but he's not willing to. <laughs> Neither glasses nor contact lenses because it would show his vulnerability. Yeah, so <laughs> somehow he ridiculous, was, uh, ridiculous. It yeah. is. Does right. he also tear up the paper after he read them like other presidents do? <laughs> I'm sure he does. Okay, back on track. Yeah. Painted on tanks and on trunk, oh, trunks, <laughs> not on their trunks. <laughs> Jesus, get it together, <laughs> please. It's painted. <laughs> 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 oh, but I'm editing. I can do whatever I want. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I, I can't let it go. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't say it now. <laughs> I'm trying to read my sentence, but I'm I'm breaking up. <laughs> oh. Let it go. Let it go. Oh. <laughs>